Father, once again, we thank you for this uh, privilege and gift that we have from you to come and uh, get together and study your word. Lord, I thank you that we look forward to being with each other. And it's even hard for us to kind of get things started because we just want to sit around and talk. And we thank you for that. Thank you for making us friends and family through Jesus. And uh, tonight, as we open your word again, we thank you that there's going to be a lot you're going to be showing us. Uh, And Lord, uh, I'm excited because of the the topic we're going to be covering is even though it's a tough one, it could be eye-opening for some of us tonight. And, and Lord, I just pray your spirit will do the opening of our eyes and our hearts. And we just surrender this time to you and thank you for the fact that you're going to do a great thing. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Revelation chapter 16. I'm going to read about the seventh bowl. We touched on the seventh bowl last time we were together. But I want to give you some scriptures. I'm going to read them uh, together here. uh, That show that the book of Revelation, the seventh bowl, has been described in many places actually uh, in in the whole of the Bible. Again, for those that have not heard me say this before, my desire in teaching the book of Revelation is not to just teach the book of Revelation, but to do a full Bible study using the book of Revelation as our launching point. There are those that just teach the book of Revelation and try to cover what it does, or what it says, and that kind of a thing, and that's great and valuable. The reason why it's taking us so long is, is if we hit, hit things in the book of Revelation that are other places in the Bible, I want to take you there to show you where they are as well. So that's why it's taking a little longer, but it's not a problem. So uh, chapter 16, verse 17 says, the, angel, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake, the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrific or terrible. All right, now, put a bookmark here and go to Matthew 24. We see in the seventh uh, bowl of God's wrath, there's a massive earthquake that levels everything on the earth. Uh, And so in Matthew 24, we're going to see how Jesus talks about this a little bit. And we're also going to look in a place in Hebrews and also in 2 Peter. But in Matthew 24, in verse 29, listen to what Jesus says. He says, Immediately after the distress of those days, talking about the very end of the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Go over to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll look at verses 25 through 29. Hebrew writer says in verse 25 of chapter 12, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, I just want to remember when he refers here to the time when God's voice shook the earth. When was that? Do you remember? Any idea? When do you think, JJ? After the seventh, um, 
No. Because at this point, the Hebrew writer is referring to something prior to that. Remember when, when God came on the mountain and met mountain, uh, Moses on the mountain and gave him the Ten Commandments? And when he spoke, the earth shook. And the Israelites were so afraid of God, they said to Moses, you talk to him. Don't, we're afraid of him talking to us. We're afraid we're going to die. So when he came and spoke then, he shook the earth. But there's a time coming where he's going to shake not only the earth, but the heavens as well. At the very end, at the time of judgment. And then we see here at the end, our God is a consuming fire. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. We see even more description of this time that's coming, and this judgment at the end of the world. Peter says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. I'll explain that in a second. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Now in this passage here, we see once again a reference to this judgment at the end of the tribulation period where God is just going to level everything. Jesus comes to the earth. He steps foot on the Mount of Olives as we've been looking at in the book of Zechariah. The, uh, the, the, he's going to recreate the world and, and for the millennial kingdom and things are going to, a river is going to flow from Jerusalem and it's going to bring healing to all the, all the water that had been turned to blood and all these types of things. There's prophecies that deal with that time-wise. We won't have time to get into that tonight. But I want you to understand that here he says, I, I want you to remember that the earth was formed by water and through water by the voice and the word of God. He said it. And when he said it, it happened. And he then destroyed the whole earth with that water in the flood. He said in the same way, the earth that we're on right now is being reserved for what? Fire and judgment of God in the same way in which he spoke it and it came into existence and he spoke the word and the flood happened. God has already said that he is going to destroy this earth and it's going to happen in the way that we've been reading. So, what can we take to the bank? It's going to happen. Therefore, since God is going to totally destroy this, he sim- the, 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 the writer here in Hebrew, uh, sorry, in, in Peter says, how ought we to live? We ought not to be living for this life. We ought not to be living 
for, for this world, but for the life to come. But as I touched on when I was preaching to a group of men this, uh, this afternoon, what I, wanted, I want you to think about is this. is Unfortunately, the Christian church today as a whole has gotten very consumed with life here. And I hear people worrying about this and worrying about that and my 401k is going down and all these types of things. And what happens is, is we've forgotten that this isn't the world we live, in, we live in anyway. This is just a time period that we're here and God's already promised He'll meet all of our needs. He'll take care of us. He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. Though pagans, those who don't know God, worry about those things. Don't be anxious for anything but in everything with prayer and thanksgiving with supplication. Make your request known to God and He'll give you peace and He'll meet your need. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. But the reason why most Christians today are walking around talking about it, you see how bad things are, oh the economy, this and that, is because we've gotten focused on this world. You know what? When, when i, I, I got to be honest with you, and I don't share this with a lot of people, I actually, when I see stuff going bad in the world, part of me gets a little excited. I'm sorry. Because the Bible says it's going to get worse and worse, and then Jesus is going to come. So when it gets worse, I just say, okay, everything's on schedule. I'm not rooting for people to die or people to lose their property or people to die in Haiti and things like that. But I also know this much. If God said it's going to happen and the earthquake's going to increase and the famines are going to increase and these things are going to happen as a sign that the end is coming, I say even so, Lord Jesus, come. Remember he said here, you look forward to the day and speed it's coming? That term translated speed it's coming is kind of like, have you, ever, have you ever been to a car race? Have you ever been to a track meet? Have you ever been to a place where there was a race and you had picked somebody you wanted to win? What did you do? You cheered and you said, come on, come on, you know, and you know, beat the horse, whatever, you know, you just started yelling, come on. Come on, come on. You, you were speeding is coming in that sense. You were looking forward to it and you were ready for it to come. All through the scripture, the, the apostles had been telling that the return of Christ was going to happen. He was going to come back. This same Jesus you saw leave in this manner is going to come back in the same way in which he left. And be ready. Be always on the alert. Be looking. Well, it's been a while now, hasn't it? And the scriptures even knew that there would be some who would say, well, where is this coming that he promised? And then... Peter says, look, if he said it's going to happen, like he did with the creation of the world and the flood, it's going to happen with this destruction and him coming back. And don't look at time the way we do. Look at it the way God does. To him, a thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. You know, God's not slow as one, many of us would consider it because he's outside of time. Just hang on to the fact that he has said it's happening and it's going to happen. We're now living in a day when we're seeing signs start to multiply. Therefore, how ought we to live? We ought to live generously, relaxed, at peace, because our Lord is coming, but in the meantime, He said He would take care of us. And if our bank account goes down, it doesn't mean it's going to run out. Even if it does, we're still going to eat. We're still going to have a place to sleep. We're still going to have clothes. We're still going to be able to get where we need to get, because God has kept His promise, and He will keep His promise that He'd take care of us. So, encourage each other. I'm going to read you one more passage and then we'll get into our study of Romans, uh, sorry, Revelation chapter 17. Go to 1 Thessalonians, try again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to show you the difference in this passage here between we and they. And it's very exciting. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. It says, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. 
For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Jesus said that. We read that again in Peter. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on what? Who? Them. Do you see that? Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all sons of the light and sons of the day. We don't belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Why does does He not have to write to them about times and dates? We're not going to be here. That day's going to come on them. But that's not us. He hasn't appointed us to suffer wrath. Therefore, be looking for His coming. Be longing for His coming. Live with an understanding that it's going to happen. Whether it happens in your lifetime or not, we don't know. But we need to be living at all times like it could. Therefore, the things of this earth will go strangely dim. But if the things of this earth are all of a sudden starting to make you fret and and panic, you're starting to look at this world as more, or at least more than you're supposed to. So don't worry about that stuff. Those who don't know God worry about those things. Those of us who do, we should be relaxed. I pray that right now all the people that work at NASA who are born-again children of God are shining like lights as everybody else panics about whether or not the space program is going to be able to have jobs. Because is God going to take care of those who are His children? They should have a chance right there to have people give, ask Him to give reason for the hope that lies within them. There's cutbacks going on everywhere. I heard today from somebody that State Farm is going to be cutting back 100 and something thousand more homeowners policies and no longer insuring. So, God's got it. God's got it. I'm going to give a little encouragement, though, and then we'll get into our study of Revelation 17. Uh, I'm a member of First Baptist Merritt Island. And Sunday they announced who the search committee that's been on the search for over 18 months, whom they think is going to be the next prospective pastor, the one they believe God has chosen. And I'm excited because the person they presented at First Baptist Merritt Island is in his 30s. He has no senior pastor experience and no seminary degree. Now that excites me because that is very non-traditional. That's very not, not how they usually do these things. But they individually each stood up and said, we know, we know, we know it breaks all the rules. But God has said this is the one He's chosen. And folks, I have for all my years in church sat in Sunday school and listened to the Sunday school lessons about them say God chooses whom we wouldn't choose and how God would use a little shepherd boy David or Gideon that's scared and he would use the ones we wouldn't choose. And we'd sit in Sunday school and say amen. And then we leave Sunday school and go into the business meeting and say he doesn't have the qualifications. Praise God for a group of people that said he doesn't have the qualifications. One lady in the search committee says he doesn't have what he needs, but the Holy Spirit will give it to him. And you ready for the reaction when they announced? You would have sworn you're at a football game. That sanctuary of over a thousand people erupted in applause. And I'm real excited because he's coming in view of a call 
in two weeks, and I get to preach the sermon to prep for it this Sunday. And I am ready to go. I am ready to go. Ready to pat those people on the back and say, you've looked to the Lord, keep your eyes on the Lord, keep going. So, to keep me from preaching that sermon, go to Revelation chapter 17. I'm going to read to you the whole chapter. Alright? Now, some of this chapter we've already previously studied, so we're going to skim over that in a little bit. But I'm going to read you the whole chapter. Listen closely to what it says here. It says, One of the seven angels, remember the seven had the bowls of God's wrath, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery. Secret. Sorry. Another word for mystery is also secret. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings and who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish His purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So... We're going to take some time now to break this down and find out who is this woman? What is this beast? What is this all about? Why is she called a prostitute yet at the same time is called the great city that rules over the kings of the earth? And in order to understand what's going on here, we have to go all the way back to Genesis. Alright, so put a bookmark in, in Revelation. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 10 to get started here. There's an interesting little tidbit in some genealogies here. After the flood, you had Noah, of course, and he had three sons. Does anybody know the three sons' names? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Right. And that's why, by the way, you can trace the line of Israel to Shem, 
That's why Israelites are called Semites or Shemites, you know, Semitic. That all goes back to Shem. But there was a son also called Ham. And look at verse 6 of chapter 10. The sons of Ham are Cush. And if you want to put a little line under Cush to mark Cush separately, you can. Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtika. The sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that's why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in Shinar. Now, this translation is kind of hard for us here when it says like a money hunter before the Lord. Actually, there are some commentators that actually think there's more of a picture of rebellion against God. Instead of before the Lord, it was against the Lord. You know, some of these prefix, you know, are, 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 are some of the ones, it's kind of hard to say of or in or above, you know, or on, that kind of a thing. There are some that think that this is actually picturing that he was a mighty hunter in rebellion against God. Okay? And actually, history has kind of shown that one of the cities that he founded was, you see there, Babylon in, in Shinar. That's going to be important later on. Okay? Now, let's go over to chapter 11 and let's take a look at what happens. Nineveh is another one later on, if you were to keep reading. Nineveh is another one that he built as well. So, not some of the most popular uh, cities when it comes to following God. And uh, look at chapter 11 now. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. It says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from, the, from there all over the earth. And they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now there's a couple of things going on here that will make more sense if you put a bookmark here now and go back to Genesis chapter 1. There was a command that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1 in verses 27 and 28. You see in chapter 1 verse 27 it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every, every living creature that moves on the ground. So God's instructions to Adam and Eve and their descendants were to do what on the earth? Fill the earth. Now, let's go back to chapter 11. They said what? We... Yeah, let's stay put. We don't want to be scattered across the whole earth, like God said. We want to make a name for ourselves. And when they built this tower, by the way, uh, the term Babel, if you were to do B-A-B, capital E-L, actually means gate of God. 
They wanted to build a way that they could get to God for themselves. And actually, historians and those that do this kind of research think that this tower was actually part of sun worship and also a lot of other weird stuff was going on. And this is the beginning of organized idolatry. Remember, idolatry is any kind of worship other than the worship of the true God. There had been some rebellion, of course, throughout history because man is that way, and that's why God you know, deludes the whole earth because of man's sin. But organized idolatry, false religion, began here in Babylon with this guy Nimrod who built this, this city. Now, again, there's historical accounts that you have to go to that say that this guy Nimrod married a lady named Semiramis I. Uh, she claimed to have given birth to a son whom she said was miraculously conceived, and she named him Tammuz, T-A-M-M-U-Z. And there became a very popular false religion where people worshipped Tammuz, this miraculous son born to Semiramis, some say the wife of Nimrod. Interestingly enough, we'll find in Scripture that actually the Bible talks about this guy Tammuz, and it's not a good thing. Go to Ezekiel chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. But I'm giving this whole section here because I want you to see what's really going on. For those of you that have study Bibles that give little headings above each section, what does it say at the beginning of chapter 8? Idolatry where? In the temple. This is what's going on in in the nation of Israel. In the temple itself, which was supposed to be dedicated to the Lord where God Himself dwelled. It says in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1, In the sixth year, in the sixth month of the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the Sovereign Lord came upon me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire, and from there up his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven in a visions, and in visions of God, He took me to Jerusalem to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Then He said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. He said to me, Son of man, did, do you see what they're doing? the utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and I saw a doorway there. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and looked and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. In front of them stood seventy elders of the house of Israel and Jazaniah son of Shaphan was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness? Each at the shrine of his own idol? They say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there mourning for taboos. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. 
He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple, between the portico and the altar, there were about twenty-five men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, Have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them, putting the branch to their nose. Therefore I will deal with them in anger. I will not look at them on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. And so here at this point... It's obvious that the nation of Israel has turned to idolatry. We've been reading about that. That's why he removed them from the land into captivity a couple of times. But a part of their idolatry and a part of their false worship was this worship of this one Tammuz. And like I say, historical accounts say that you can trace Tammuz back to Nimrod, supposedly the child of Nimrod's wife, Semiramis I. All I want you to understand is this. False religion, organized false religion, has its origin in the city of Babylon. Now, I believe that the Bible teaches in Revelation, and we'll get to that next week as we look at commercial Babylon being destroyed in chapter 18. I believe that ultimately, in the end, because I think the Bible's pretty literal here, I think that the headquarters of the Antichrist will ultimately be in Babylon. Now, stick with me. I'm going to show you at the very end of our study a very interesting passage a lot of people don't know about that I think there's a chance. You know, we for years thought the headquarters of the the Antichrist might be in Rome. And, And it may well be for a time in the revived Roman Empire. But I think that if it does start in Rome, there is a point where it moves its headquarters from there to Babylon. And I'll show you that later when we get to the end. But just stick with me so far that organized religion, false religion, is centered and headquartered, originated in Babylon. Now, it's interesting in God's sense of humor, they called it Babel, the gate of God, and then he turned it into Babel, uh, you know, kind of a thing where he confused all their languages. I love God's humor. Uh, But when the Antichrist comes in power, there's three aspects of his reign. To to rule the world, you've got to have three things under control. One, you've got to have control over the government all right, of all the world. Another thing is you've got to have control over the economy. Okay? That's the one world economy. And you have to have control over religion. Because it doesn't matter what kind of a government you have or what kind of an economy you have, people are still going to worship. It's been put in us by God. There's the need to worship something. And so there are three pillars, if you will, of the Antichrist kingdom. The government, uh, economy, and false religion. Here we see in Revelation 17, God judging all false religion that has happened over all of history. And it's culminating, of course, in the Antichrist kingdom. And, uh, and uh, he's going to be bringing it down. But there's more I want you to see. Uh, this, again, this is from historical study. If you want to know some more about this, see me afterwards. I'll show you where some of these books are that you can do the research for yourself. But this mother of Tammuz, Semiramis I, also had another name. They called her the Queen of Heaven. Alright? And I'm going to show you scripturally that Queen of Heaven is not a good title. Now, unfortunately, we know of some churches that name themselves Queen of Heaven. And it's sad because if you read your Bibles, the Queen of Heaven is really, really bad. This, I'll show you what I mean. Go to Jeremiah chapter 7. I'm going to look at verses 16 through 19. Chapter 7 of Jeremiah, verses 16 through 19. Again, God, you see it, the, head, the, head, the heading over chapter 7? False religion is worthless, alright? 
chapter, chapter 7, verse 16. So God says to, to Jeremiah, Do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they're doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers light the fire, and the women knead dough and make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. But am I the, the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Now, again, that's just one place. Turn over to chapter 44 of Jeremiah, and it becomes even more clear. Jeremiah chapter 44. Look at verses 15 through 28. Jeremiah 44:15 says, "Then all the men who knew what their wives, who knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods, along with all the women who were present, a large assembly and all the people living in lower and upper Egypt said to Jeremiah, "We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven." And we will pour out drink offerings to her, just as we and our fathers, our kings and our office officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time we had plenty of food, and we were well off and suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and have been perishing by sword and famine. The women added, when we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did not our husbands know that we were making cakes like her image and pouring out drink offerings to her? Then Jeremiah said to all the people, both men and women who were answering him, did not the Lord remember and think about the incense burned in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem by you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land? When the Lord could no longer endure your wicked actions and the detestable things you did, your land became an object of cursing and a de desolate waste without inhabitants as it is today. Because you have burned incense and have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed him or followed his law or decrees or his stipulations, this disaster has come upon you as you now see. Then Jeremiah said to all the people, including the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all the people of Judah in Egypt. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You and your wives have shown by your actions what you promised when you said we will certainly carry out the vows we made to burn incense and pour out drink offerings to the Queen of Heaven. Go ahead then. Do what you promised. Keep your vows. But hear the word of the Lord, all Jews living in Egypt. I swear by my great name, says the Lord, that no one from Judah living anywhere in Egypt will ever again invoke my name or swear as surely as the Sovereign Lord lives. For I am watching over them for harm, not for good. The Jews in Egypt, Egypt will perish by sword and famine until they are destroyed. Those who escape the sword and, and return to the land of Judah from Egypt will be very few. Then the whole remnant of Judah who came to live in Egypt will know the word, who will, will know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. So, folks, this just, without trying to get into too much detail, is worshiping the Queen of Heaven a good thing or a bad thing? According to this passage, it's not good. It's idolatry. Now, I had a very interesting conversation with a man today. At the end of my preaching, I was preaching on that passage we looked at earlier, and I referenced the fact that the world is not going to get better, it's going to get worse. The Bible is very clear about this. I then talked about a few things that I see that are happening in our country that show that even we as a nation who used to be followers of God have turned our back on God, and, and how we as a nation are, are actually becoming very detestable in the eyes of the Lord as well. I referenced two things. 
I talked about the fact that I don't know if many of you saw on the news that the Air Force has now built a Wiccan prayer circle for those who want to practice occult, the occult who are in the military now to be fair to the other religions. And then I also saw that there's a TV show coming out called Bump where people can decide which one should have an abortion. People will be able to vote and text in and whatever. And there's three different women in their different scenarios and what's going on. And they get the, the Americans get to choose who's supposed to have the abortion. It's not true story. It's just scenarios. It's scenarios. It's not a true actual abortion. It's just scenarios. But people will vote on which one they think is the one that should. Just referencing these things, there was a man afterwards who was very upset, and he wanted to talk to me. He was visiting for the first time, and, and he actually said, I felt very welcome here. There's a group of men that come about 50 to 70 every Tuesday at Central Baptist for lunch, and I speak to him when I'm in town. And uh, he said, I, I really disagree with some of the things you said. What's wrong with other people worshiping the way they want? I said, I have no problem with other people worshiping the way they want. My problem is when our government sponsors it. So there's a difference. He said, so you're saying that your way is the only way. I said, no, I'm not saying that. This is what the Bible said. He said, so you have a problem with people worshiping? I said, listen, I will base everything you'll ever hear me say from this book. Jesus said he is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to the Father. Therefore, anything else is idolatry. Any other kind of faith is false faith. Now, you either believe this book to be true or you don't. He said, I can't accept that. He said, I think everybody can believe whatever they want to believe. I said, you're welcome to believe that, but I believe according to God's word that you're wrong. The neat thing was, he was very, you know, he was very vehement in how he felt, but he's like, I hope I haven't offended you by arguing with you. And I said, look, I'm loving the fact that you're wrestling with this. I showed him Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, where it says, if we diligently seek him, he reveals himself to us. I said, keep searching, read the book for yourself. But his mindset was, what's the big deal? And the sad thing is, and I'm going to be straight with you because I travel the country and I speak in many different churches, you would be shocked how many people in your churches, knowing you all come from different churches, you'd be surprised how many people in all your churches really think that it's okay for other people to worship other gods. Jesus is the way that I found that I'm going to get to God, but I, have, I don't have any problem with them going to God that way. And in the eyes of God, it's detestable. And God has been against it, and He called it what? He called it prostitution. Because remember, the picture of Jesus and His bride is the picture of marriage. And by the way, that's why God hates divorce. It's not that divorce is an unforgivable sin. God created the marriage relationship to be a picture of Christ in the church. When we jump out of our marriages, we're messing up His picture that He created. Till death do us part. When God makes a covenant with us, even when we're not faithful, He's faithful. That's the only reason the Bible says God hates divorce. So don't feel like if you've got a divorce, God will never... No, it's just He forgives sin, but that's what He made this picture of. It's a picture of Him. And He sees worship of any other thing as prostitution. Oh, by the way, He thinks if you put your confidence in your bank account instead of Him, that's idolatry as well. He wants to be totally depended on by you. The good news is you and I have both at times put our confidence in our bank accounts. But because we're forgiven through Jesus Christ, we're saved and we're sealed and thank God for that. But in Revelation 17, this woman on the beast is all false religion that has emanated from Babylon. And so, 
again, whatever the full details of all these things are, pagan practices are, we can see that they were neither good nor pleasing to God. And let's go back to Revelation 17 in the time we have left here, because I want to show you a couple things real quick. We see that this woman is sitting on the beast for a time. What does that give you a picture of? She's kind of in control. For, for, a, for a while, this one world religion, this false religion centered there, uh, is in control of the Antichrist kingdom. What happens to her though? We read that earlier. You see it in verse 16. She gets devoured. The beast and the kings that are in charge are going to turn on her and hate her. I think this is going to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. I think this is when the Antichrist steps into the temple, declares himself to be God, sets up the image of himself, and people have to worship it now, or else be put to death and all this type of thing. Again, I don't have to be right or wrong. That's just roughly when I think it may happen. We don't really know. But that's something there. But just as a reminder, I'm just going to read this to you for the sake of time, because I want to get you to that interesting passage. Um, Remember, we looked at this earlier. The seven heads of the beast equal seven hills and seven kings, as it says here. Now, we've heard for years that Rome is a city built on seven hills, so that must mean Rome. Well, we can't use that as your exegesis or your reason why, because, as we looked at before, Athens, Greece is a city that sits on seven hills. Amman, Jordan is a city that sits on seven hills. Actually, if you look at this and do the study compared back with Daniel and what all has been going on through history, it says these seven heads are seven kingdoms, is what it says here. Alright, if you remember at this point, you had had five, it says here, let's look here, let me go to where it says it, um, boom, 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 boom. I'm looking where it says five, verse 10, yes, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. At this point, when this was written, Egypt was the first world kingdom, Assyria was the second, Babylon was the third, Medo-Persia was the fourth, and Greece had been the fifth. Five have fallen. One is, and that's Rome. At this point, Rome is in charge. And then one is yet to come. And this is the one world kingdom, the revival of the Roman Empire under the rule of the Antichrist, which is going to happen in the very, very end. Okay? But like I said it, uh, earlier, there are those who think that the, the, the headquarters of the uh, Antichrist are going to be centered in Rome. And they may be, because Daniel did talk about the fact that the, the people of the, are going to come and destroy the city. The ruler is going to come from them. It was obvious. We know from history in AD 70, it was the Romans that destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And so we, we know it's going to be the revival of the Roman Empire. Fully, all that, how that all plays out, we won't know probably, because the Bible says he won't be revealed until after we're removed. But there's an interesting passage in the book of Zechariah, and I want you to go there. It's in chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. By the way, there's a very interesting little tidbit here. All the way through Scripture, every time you see an angel, it's a man, or at least has the form of a man. There's only one place in all of Scripture that angels appear to look like women. And it's here in Zechariah chapter 5. And as soon as I get there, I can join you. There we go. Here we are. Zechariah chapter 5. Look at verses 5 through 11. It says, the angel that, Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward, and he said to me, look, and, look up and see what this is that is appearing. I asked, What is it? He replied, It's a measuring basket. And he added, This is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. 
He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed the lead cover down over its mouth. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied to the country of Babylonia, some of your translations will say Shinar, to build a house for it, where when it is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. Isn't that interesting? At some point, wickedness will be taken and centered in Babylon. Like I say, I'm leaning more and more, I've grown in my study of the Word and understanding of end times, that ultimately, one day, the headquarters of the Antichrist will be in Babylon. It'll be a revival of the Roman Empire, but I think there might be a point where it moves to Shinar. Yeah, it would definitely be like God to bring things full circle. You know, Babylon's being rebuilt right now. Now, who knows what's going to happen and how things all play out. We're living in some interesting days, y'all. I'm just going to say this just for the sake of uh, interest and uh, information. Uh, Amenajad's full of hot air, so I wouldn't believe a whole lot that he says. But he is claiming that February 11th is going to be a day that America comes to its end. Or at least the American way of life, as he said. He's, he's been making, he made a speech, uh, and he very, very over and over kept talking about how February 11th of this year uh, is going to be a day that um, um, the American way and the American, American system is going to come to an end. Again, he's been blowing smoke for a lot of years, but at the same time, if you know anything about him, he really believes that his God, Allah, has put him in power for this time to bring about their, the end of the world, and in the Quran in the in the Muslim faith and in, in the faith of Islam, they're waiting for this twelfth Imam. We know him as the Antichrist from our scriptures, the Word of God, but they think that there's going to be coming this one world ruler who's going to put Islam as the one world religion and they're going to rule the world. He thinks it's his job to bring the chaos that will usher him in. He's wanting nuclear weapons. The world's trying to get him to stop. Of course, they're doing it through saying, let's have a little talk and talk over coffee. But um, you don't deal with a madman that way. Another interesting thing I read tonight was that the CIA presented to, before Congress today that Al-Qaeda has put operatives out into our country. They know it. And they believe that there's going to be an attack on America within the next three to six months. Again, we don't know. This is not the Word of God. This is just news reporting. But it's very interesting that this is going on. Now, the good news is, I'm not worried. I'm not. Because God has said He was going to take care of His people. It doesn't mean we're not going to experience some bumps. It, I'm not saying this means the rapture is going to occur. I'm not saying that, it, that we might not go through some trials between now and the rapture. I'm not saying we're going to avoid anything, but I know this much. Prophecy is being fulfilled in our day. Yes, ma'am. We might actually get to know each other really well. <laughs> <laughs> we, yes, yeah, because I think, I think uh, the McVicker's place is a bomb shelter, is it not? <laughs> Jerry didn't seem too excited about that. <laughs> yes, sir, Fred, go ahead. Huh? You think it's all from me, the fact you think that Babylon will be resurrected. And in Isaiah it says that Babylon will be no more. I actually believe I actually believe that that has not been fulfilled yet. That passage that said Babylon will be no more ever. I don't think it's been fully fulfilled. Because let's be honest. 
um, what's his name, built his palace there, um, the leader of Iraq, Saddam Hussein. He built, he rebuilt Babylon. He was rebuilding it. He rebuilt his palace there. We've got Americans now that are there. It's being rebuilt. It's been rebuilt. I actually think that prophecy in Isaiah has not yet been fulfilled. We're going to read about that some more next week as we get to God bringing final judgment on Babylon. I don't believe that that's been fully fulfilled. I also believe from a study of scripture that I think Israel may be attacking even Syria before they attack Iran. There's a really good chance from Psalm 83, uh, sorry, uh, Psalm 83 and Isaiah 17 that actually the Bible talks of a destruction of uh, Damascus, Syria, and, and, and Lebanon, and those people. And interestingly enough, when we see Ezekiel 38 and 39 and all these nations gathering with Russia to go against Israel, the ones they're fighting with right now on their border aren't involved in that listing of the nations. Interestingly enough, there's a chance that, and right now Israel is this close to going to war with Damascus, there's a chance that they actually might wipe out Syria. And that might be partially why they feel like they're at peace. If you remember Ezekiel 38 and 39 says that when they're feeling like they're living in safety, that's when they come. Again, please don't hear me say that's how it's going to be. We don't know. But in answer to your question, which I gave a long answer, I don't think that prophecy in Isaiah has been fulfilled yet. I think it's still coming. That judgment on Babylon. I'm sorry? I'm sorry? There you go. That's fine. Like I say, don't take everything I say as the truth. Remember, you're to be Bereans. You're to be examining what I say according to Scripture. You need to be testing whether or not you think it is. My role is to come and share with you what I believe God has shown me. I'm teaching the Word of God. James 3 said, I will be held accountable by God for what I teach. So I take it seriously. But, like I say, when it comes to prophecy, we don't know until it happens. I'm just throwing out to you some possibility scenarios. Go ahead. I saw a hand somewhere. I, I, I praise that. I, I, I praise God. My wife will tell you. I read it to her and praised God. For those who didn't hear what he was saying, Netanyahu actually had a speech and the 65th anniversary of the Holocaust said that Ezekiel 37 has been fulfilled. I've never heard him say anything about I've never heard anybody in leadership like that say something like that. But by the way, Ezekiel 37 is the valley of the dry bones. And God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, only you know. And then he's told to preach to it. And the bones all come back together. You know, that's where we got our song, knee bone connected to the hip bone, all that kind of stuff. Well, actually, if you take pictures of all those dry, dead bones from the Holocaust and the nation of Israel being totally scattered like they had been, and the fact that they all came back together, I don't know if I would agree with them that it's fully fulfilled, but it's very awesome that the leader of Israel is equating Scripture with where they are right now. That's a good thing. The breath of God has not been in them yet. That part has not been fulfilled. And that's part of Ezekiel 37. I, that's what I'm saying. I'm not sure I would agree that it's fully been fulfilled. I, I think it's awesome that he made the statement. Knowing some people that I know that know him. I'll put it to you that way. I think there's more under the surface about his faith, but because of politics. I think he knows more of the Lord than me maybe be knowing. I'll put it that way. It definitely wasn't politically correct, which I'm good with. 
Let me pray for us. If you have any more questions, we'll, we'll do that without the recording on. So let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this chance to do this study. Uh, I knew it was going to be an interesting and fun one to get us to look at some things and wrestle with them and chew on them. Lord, again, our purpose is to come and to open this book up and allow you to speak to our hearts. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the fact that I don't have to know it all. But also you've called me to study and to teach. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that that's been accomplished tonight. Now, may your spirit do what you want in us and through us through your word. And bring us back excited again to look at chapter 18. We pray this in your name. Amen.